From the first ever bottled bourbon to the highly coveted birthday bourbon, Old Forester has done some pretty big things in the American whiskey industry. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Melissa Rift, the master taster at Old Forester, and we get to discuss everything from the history of the Old Forester brand, the different lineups of bottles that they have, all the way to the coveted bottles that are hard to find, like the birthday bourbon that I mentioned in the beginning. So without further ado, let's take a behind-the-scenes look at Melissa's job as the master taster for Old Forester bourbon. First, Melissa, I want to thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to talk with me about this. Um, I have a few questions I'm very excited to ask about Old Forester and the lineup and things like that. So, so thank you for taking the time and sitting down with me. Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Of course, of course. I think uh, first it would be best just for those listening to talk about your day-to-day job and what you do at Old Forester um, as the master taster and kind of where your your areas of, of expertise are within the company. Yeah, it's a. I get that question a lot because master taster isn't something that every brand has um, and a lot of folks are familiar with master distillers and master blenders. Master tasters are a little bit more um, kind of loosely defined. So I always kind of frame it up by saying master distillers, they oversee the entirety of production process, starting from incoming natural resources all the way through the finished product in the bottle. Um, Master blenders are more on that maturation to finished goods side. So really like combining the finished flavor profiles, proofing, finishing, um, any of those levers that you're pulling kind of after that distillate has matured. And then master tasters usually train in some capacity um, underneath a master blender, master distiller. So I I do a lot of training with Chris Morris, who's our master distiller on Old Forester um, and also Woodford Reserve for a long time. So um, I'm fortunate that, you know, a master taster role is is part working on the brand, but also kind of growing in your skill set as well, which is what I was really excited to step into in this role. And at Brown Foreman, it also takes on um, a lot to do with special releases and our innovation pipeline. And I also like to tell people like it's a collaborative role. So there's nothing that I am like solely in charge of that I'm going to be like the beginning, middle and end authority on um, because the nature of this industry is collaborative. You have hundreds of people working on bringing this to life. Um, and so I kind of sit as a collaborator in our innovation pipeline. So folks at our distillery who are working on any new concept that we have coming down the line, um, our warehousing folks, obviously, on the finished goods side. Uh, we have folks who work in innovation on package design and labeling um, and then kind of tasting the final product, determining how we want it to go out to market, how we want to communicate it. Um, that's a big part of my role as well. And then I also fall into the brand ambassador space. So on top of kind of working on the liquid, I also act as a national brand ambassador. So I do spend quite a bit of time out in market visiting, you know, our field teams who are really making it happen out across the country um, and also connecting with consumers so that what we are working on for the brand, like moving into the future, it aligns with what our consumers are, are enjoying about us and what they like. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So you're really, um, you're getting both sides of it. You're kind of getting the boots on the ground aspect of what people are looking for. And at the same time, you're helping to develop the flavor profiles of these releases. And I assume there's some involvement with, uh, with not, not new releases, but what's currently being out there. Is there like a quality control involvement to make sure our, your flavors aren't drifting or yeah, is it mostly I, with the, the new release? Thing? On my list of things, I guess I forgot to mention also, uh, <laughs> ensuring the continued quality of the products. So, so yeah, another big part of the role is working on our sensory panel. So we have 
quality control sensory panel. And then we have um, kind of standardization paneling where we make sure that our flavors are maintaining consistency. So that's part of the job as well. Okay. I'm really curious by that um, because I feel like, you know, most people don't get into this industry if they don't already have an enjoyment for whiskey. But do you feel like your relationship with whiskey has changed because you're doing like quality control types of tasting? Or do you think that it's only kind of furthered your your interest in it and your love for it? I think that from like a genuine educational perspective, like it's really kind of engaged me even more. Um, I, you know, it's funny cause I talk to other people who work kind of in similar capacities as me in the industry. And, um, you know, whiskey is, I, I think less a hobby for a lot of us than a lot of hobbyists expect, you know, people come up to me, um, in the market and, and talk about like their collections of bourbon. And to be quite honest, like that's not quite something that I like fully lean into, um, I enjoy it really from like an educational perspective and I like growing in my career. And so the sensory paneling has been really fascinating because I've worked in the industry for almost seven years now, but I haven't been given the kind of access behind the scenes that I have in this role. And so I've always understood, I've always been on like execution, um, brand education, ambassadorship. And so to kind of see all the steps that go into bringing that to life for me is like what I geek out on is like kind of the comprehension and the educational understanding of that less so than, um, you know, like geeking about whiskey as a hobby. Uh, and I tell people all the time, my consumption is like, honestly, at an all time low, because I don't really feel the need to go home and drink lots and lots of whiskey, because I spent all day like meticulously understanding it. And like, that is what's really fun for me. I, I feel like it almost has to be that way in order to survive in the industry. I mean, if I think if you if somebody went into it just, I like to taste whiskey, so I want to be a professional whiskey taster, I think you'd get burnt out like almost immediately. Oh, um, yeah. I, I have I, people all the time that are like, you have the best job. I love drinking whiskey. I want to be a master taster. And I'm like, that those things actually don't quite align. And my wife always tells people that I'm a master taster, not a master drinker which I think is a good line. <laughs> that, that is a good line. I, it's almost like um, just if you like a certain animal, that doesn't mean you're going to like dissecting that animal every day because you're kind of dissecting the flavor profiles of the whiskey. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that about not drinking super often either because that's actually something I talk about quite a bit, um, especially with obviously I'm not a you know, professional master taster, but I do a lot of reviewing and I've I've consciously cut back the amount that I'm drinking because I'm like, if I don't, just in reviewing, my, my consumption is going to be huge. Um, so I haven't gotten to the point of like a, like a spitting it out instead of swallowing it yet. But I imagine if you have like a heavy tasting day, do you have to do it that way? Or are you usually the tastings are paced out enough that it's not a problem? Yeah, I have a tasting day. And then also just depends on the time of day. Like if I am mm -hmm. hosting an experience in the afternoon, and I have to be writing tasting notes, like first thing in the morning, I'm usually going to be spitting my samples out, like just purely for the fact that I'll get sleepy, or I might get a headache, you know, and you have like just enough to make you feel kind of crummy. Um, yep. but, but not enough to kind of keep your your night rolling. Um, and so <laughs> de depending on the time of day, and then right now, um, I, I don't know how many people out in the public know this, but it's, you know, public knowledge at work I'm expecting in February. So um, I can still very much do my job just by, you know, spitting out my samples and I can still get that sensory experience. So uh, there are lots of ways to, you know, be able to participate in the role without actual consumption. Although I am excited to get back to it uh, 
in the spring. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And second of all, that's not something I ever thought about. So that, that's yeah. a very good point. Um, yeah, I, I guess that makes it extra important to, to be able to taste it without uh, having to swallow it and get. Now, I've actually, so I've never done that. Uh, do you feel like, and I've heard people talk about it, you still experience the finish the same way? Or is it you kind of have to learn the subtle differences um, in between swallowing the whiskey and spitting out the whiskey? Yeah, I, the finish is the one thing um, that I think I wouldn't say you compromise, but you definitely it isn't it, quite the same. Um, I do think I've been so I was actually really reluctant to start like spitting samples when I first got into it. I used to run single barrel programs and I was doing a lot of sampling kind of by way of that. And I was getting that like lethargic kind of end of my day. And I thought, well, mm -hmm. if I am not consuming um, throughout the day, maybe that'll help. And at first I felt like I just wasn't getting to pick up on the finish. Now I think I've adjusted to the difference um, and I can pick up a little bit. But one thing that I'm really particular about because I'm a very collaborative person just by nature is when I'm writing tasting notes or working on a project, I'll pull someone else from the team in. Um, and I really like to do it as like a point of mentorship too. If there's like someone at our distillery that's really eager to learn like a little bit more about sensory development and I'll say, Hey, do you want to come do this tasting with me? And we can talk about, you know, what aligns because I don't like to write tasting notes in a vacuum. My opinion might not be everybody's take on a product. So the more voices in the room, I think the better. And if I am spitting my samples out, that gives me at least one or two other people that are getting like that full finish. Yeah, yeah, I think that's awesome. I like that spin on it too, using somebody who who probably wants to learn more about it. I mean, I imagine that's really exciting if you're just having a normal day and then it's like, hey, come help me write this flavor profile. <laughs> that's pretty that's Yeah, pretty well, and I tell people all the time, sensory analysis is just as much about confidence and language as it is about exposure and, and kind of skill. Um, and so it helps people build their confidence in language, but also it brings in voices that aren't maybe experts in the industry, which your podcast is called Whiskey Noobs. So I presume you might have some people who are new to the category that listen to you. Um, Absolutely. And, and those people deserve kind of a voice in the room as well. So I think all around, it's just a, a good practice that I like to implement. Yeah, I can see that being super useful. You're, you're totally right. There are, it depends on your level. Some people, uh, I was just talking about this. Um, we did a, a barrel picking episode and, and for some people, the, the first impression is almost all that matters. If, if they taste it and they like it or they don't like it, that's what's important. And then there's some people who the first impression almost doesn't matter and what they taste 20 minutes into it with a drop of water is what matters to them. So that, that's a really, I never really considered it that way, but that's a great way to really try to cover all the corners when you're looking into that. That, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So now I do have a couple old Forrester specific uh, questions and, and one, so the first one that I have that I, I didn't even know about until I was uh, looking a little bit on the website is that it is the first ever bottled bourbon. Now, can you break that down for me? Like where that lands in the, the history of bourbon and, and how old Forrester got to have that title? Oh yeah. So we were founded in 1870, um, which 1870 is the year of the first bottled bourbon, um, because that's mm -hmm. the year we were founded. Uh, <laughs> and everything prior to that was sold by the barrel. So people are always like, well, what, what was done if nobody was bottling bourbon? And so suppliers would sell by the barrel, which means there weren't really batching practices um, like we use today to kind of bring together consistent brand profile and flavor. Um, you'd sell a barrel of whiskey to your local saloon or your retailer or your drugstore. Um, 
And the problem with that is that it lacked transparency. So there were a lot of people in the industry making good, reputable whiskey, but there were people who could kind of fly under the radar making counterfeit and rectified whiskey that was not only not really what you were paying for, but also some of it quite harmful. And so there was no way to distinguish between those two suppliers. And George Garvin Brown, who was our founder, worked in the pharmaceuticals business. And so it was particularly damaging to his business because there was no regulation on the product. And if you can't distinguish between good and bad whiskey, then it's quite likely you'll have, you know, harmful rectified whiskey making its way into your pharmaceuticals industry. And so his solution was that he started sourcing barrels of whiskey he knew to be reputable. He batched them together, um, which we have a, a pro- um, one of our whiskey row series, the 1870s called original batch, because he was one of the very early people creating kind of batch profile. Um, but then the, the really notable thing he did was put it in a glass bottle. And so that guaranteed quality, he tamper proof sealed it. And people would know when they picked up that glass bottle that it had kind of integrity behind it. And that that's the, the birth of Old Forester. Wow. I mean, I, I've talked about like the Bottled and Bond Act, which came, you know, what, 27 years 27 later. 27 years, times. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I never considered uh, the, the precursor to that. I mean, that's a really important. It's like the Wild West of pharmaceuticals that <laughs> whiskey was considered a medicine. And uh, yeah, you didn't really know what you were getting. I yeah. Well, and I always tell that people side of the that, coin. that the Bottled and Bond Act was distillers going to the government and demanding legislation that would protect people. And that was born out of people like George Garvin Brown, who kind of did it of his own volition. Um, And it was kind Mm -hmm. of a a worldwide movement as well. There was, um, I don't remember historically what year it was, but Bottled and Bond was also quite inspired by Germany's practices of bottling and um, regulating beer, um, kind of similar century. And so I think that because I would say America and bourbon kind of grew up together, um, there were all these counterfeiters, you know, there's always people who ruin a good thing. Um, compromising the industry, people finally said, look, we need some kind of like consistent regulation. These guys are doing it right. Um, and so George really was kind of a disruptor and an innovator in that way. Absolutely. I, I That's a really good point, too, that I, I think that's also very well shown by the Bowden and Bond Act about America and bourbon growing up together because it's the first consumer protection. It's like we learned it through whiskey and through spirits in general, I suppose. But um, it's a really good example of that. And speaking of America and bourbon growing up together, when people ask me, why do I spell whiskey with an E? Why do other people spell it with no E? I Typically, the, the shortest answer that I say is, well, I spell it that way because in the US, we spell it that way. You know, Scotland, they don't have the E, other countries. Um, but Old Forester tends to go without the E. And I'm curious, I actually don't know the story behind that. I'm curious why that is. So it's a pretty brief answer. It's just that the Brown family, which we're sixth generation Brown family owned, were the longest um, continuously offered bourbon in the bourbon category. We've been offered for 153 years without interruption, which is impressive kind of in and of itself because that spans before, during, and after prohibition. Um, But we've been, we're the founding brand for Brown Foreman owned by the Brown family, and we are still overseen by that family and they're of Scotch descent. And so we use that Scottish spelling to just kind of like tie into their heritage Um, you know, a kind of quick, easy rule people use is if the country of origin has an E in it, then whiskey usually has an E in it. Um, so American whiskey, Irish whiskey, Scotland doesn't. Um, so we don't use an E in that. Now the one kind of 
exception to that is anytime you'll see Old Forester bourbon whiskey, there will be no E, but we do have our Whiskey Row series named after the location Whiskey Row, which does use an E. So that's where you see a little discrepancy on the label because um, we're, we're noting the location Whiskey Row. Oh, what an attention to detail. Okay. I actually <laughs> hadn't noticed that. That's pretty funny. Okay. Yeah, I see, because I'm looking at bourbon whiskey here with no E. I have the, the 100 right now, one of yeah, my favorites in the, mm-hmm. in the budget range. Uh, that is very clever. Wow. I was I was curious about that, and I, I just had to ask out of personal curiosity because I was like, I, I wonder what, what the reasoning for that is. It's not often you see bourbon whiskey with, with no E. So Yeah, usually uh, when there's some kind of family tie of Scottish descent, that's pretty much the only time you see it. And so the fact that we have mm-hmm. been overseen by this scotch descent family for six generations you know we definitely maintain that as part of our heritage yeah yeah i I mean i think as you should i think it's a fun little like easter egg for people to to look into um and there's there's a lot with old forester that i want to talk about because there's so many different little things i like that it's not just um hey here's a bottle this one tastes good here's another bottle this one tastes good um I always say I love when there's like a good story or even if it's just good marketing. I like good marketing. I'm a sucker for good marketing. <laughs> and so with the Whiskey Row series and with uh, the Old Fine Whiskey, the, the branding is fun. Um, and so the Old Fine Whiskey, though, I really want to talk about because we see a lot of double barreled or double oaked selections nowadays. And I'm actually a pretty big fan of those. Um, and that's kind of the story behind the old fine whiskey. Could you break down what specifically happened for those listening and why the old fine whiskey exists? Yeah. So, uh, 1910 old fine whiskey, it is part of our whiskey row series, which I've referenced a couple of times. It's a four part series kind of historically anchored by benchmark years in Old Forester's past. Um, and it is a, it's a storytelling driven portfolio. So for those that do like that historical component to accompany um, their whiskey, it's a really fun one to dive into. I always tell people, you know, the, the aim here is not for us to recreate the exact same flavor profile of liquid that was being made, say in 1870 or 1897. It's modern craft expressions that have kind of been inspired by the stories of that time. Um, and the 1910s a, a perfect example of that because in 1910, we were operating out of actually the same space we're in on Whiskey Road today. Um, our tourism experience is in the original Old Forester location that we resided in from 1882 to 1919. Um, and in 1910, there was a fire on Whiskey Row. And if you look up Whiskey Row history, there's a pretty prolific history of fires. So it's a it's an interesting <laughs> part of downtown Louisville heritage. Um, but in 1910, particularly, we were bottling down in our sub-basement of the building. And there was whiskey that was fully matured and proofed and batted and ready to go in bottles. And there wasn't time to put it in bottles with this fire raging. And so they dumped it out of the vats into new charred oak barrels because barrels roll really easily. They can be transported and they rolled them out the building kind of quick enough to salvage them from the fire. Um, And that kind of by accident created the first double barreling of bourbon ever on record. And really nobody talked about it for a long time. They did bottle it a couple years later. um, They tasted it. I always tell people back in 
early 1900s, we didn't have portfolios of whiskey. If something didn't taste like your brand, you usually named it something new. And so after being double barreled for a couple of years, didn't taste like Old Forester. They called it Old Fine Whiskey, which is why we put that name on the bottle. Um, and really, it was just kind of a, a blip in Old Forester's history. We have some of the original bottles in our archives that we can kind of look back on and know the story, but it didn't even go to market. It was like gifted to friends and family of the brand, distributor partners, people like that, um, as this kind of one-off, look what happened by accident because of this fire. Today, finishing projects are really popular. It's really become a huge modern trend in craft bourbon. And because that's part of our history, you know, we wanted to do a finishing project that double barreled in a, a second new charred oak cask. And we wanted to kind of pay homage to the fire story by extra charring that barrel to really pick up a lot of the like roasty toasty flavors. So you, you held up the signature 100, you got it right next to you. G great expression mm -hmm. of Old Forester, I agree best value for flavor I think you get anywhere on shelf. And we basically make that product to begin with. Um, we mature barrels, we batch them together, and we actually go to the trouble of proofing them down to 100. So if we were to come out at cast strength and go right into that second barrel, we wouldn't have as much solubility with a higher alcohol content. So bringing that proof down to 100 actually gives us a little bit more development um, in this additional year, we're going to double barrel and we send it to a barrel that's been extra, extra charred. So we char this thing for over a minute. Um, Brown Foreman is the only producer that coopers their own barrels. So this is where we get to kind of play with our barrel specs a little bit, having that in-house capacity. And uh, we finish for an extra year in that barrel that has charred extra, extra long. And it just layers these like really confectionery flavors that come out of the barrel, like right on top of one another, because you're getting this really classic bourbon flavor build that you get in the Signature 100 proof. Um, and then you layer this really extra charred, caramelized creme brulee kind of barrel on top of it. Yeah, I uh, I think it's 1910 that's actually my favorite in the series. Um, I've had the 1910 and the 1920, which are both fantastic but um i'm a sucker for double oak i, I love the extra woodiness um so i'm a really big fan of the 1910 but i love the american hard-headedness that i never considered <laughs> with that story until you said they put it in barrels because they could roll them away from the fire easily <laughs> that there's something on fire and they're like put it in the barrels so we can get them out of here so we don't lose it well i always tell wow. people you have to think two things are happening here risk prevention because that's just going to make the fire worse and also, you know, salvaging all that hard-earned tax-paid whiskey that they <laughs> right. on the bottling line. So. Right, exactly. That's like, I didn't even, the picture in my mind of that now is hilarious <laughs> that they were doing that as they were, uh, as the building was on fire or Whiskey Row was on fire, I should say. Um, so that, so the Whiskey Row series, what what are all four of those bottles then? So 1910 is is the old fine whiskey with that story. Um, and then yeah. I believe it's, yeah, I'll let you walk through it. You know it better than me. <laughs> so the, chronologically, the portfolio kicks off with our, our founding year, 1870, and we call that original batch. Um, that's a 90 proof expression. For us, it's very fruits and florals. I always say that one's all about finesse. Um, it kind of is accessible enough for people just getting into bourbon, but also complex enough for folks who really like a lot of layers of flavor. Um, and it just has that really nice 
kind of uh, signature fruitiness that you tend to get from Old Forester that we actually derive from our yeast strain. Um, and then, so that's 1870. 1897 is the bottled and bond. Um, we follow all traditional bottled and bond rules to put that one together. And that one for us is very woods and spice forward. So this is where we get a lot more of your classic bourbon drinkers, bourbon profile with like big baking spice, a little bit of black pepper, um, super rich, like oak tannins kind of coming on the back end and a lot of caramelization. And then we have 1910, which is our double barrel that's at 93 proof. Um, so again, really accessible proof, but probably our sweetest and most confectionery expression with the double barreling would just pull so much of that kind of thick, viscous, um, really uh, desserty profile. And then 1920 is our fourth expression and that is our highest proof. It's 115 proof. So really great for those folks that do like a little bit more presence from the ABV. Um, also pretty confectionery, desserty flavor profile. It's got a lot of like candied spice nuts and dark chocolate. Um, and it's a great offering for people who are looking for just a, that big pop of flavor you get from that proof. Okay. And, um, 1920, is that for prohibition or is that there's, there's a prohibition label, correct? Yeah. We call it prohibition style. So it's kind of calling That's back it. to medicinal style whiskey since we were one of the few companies who were producing medicinal whiskey at the time, or I should say bottling medicinal whiskey. Cause we weren't actually, mm -hmm allowed to run our stills, um, but we were bottling Old Forester that had already been made and aged. And typically oh. medicinal whiskey would come out um, around batch proof. So once we dumped the barrels, proof them together, um, 110 to 115 was kind of the common proof for medicinal whiskey back then. So that's kind of how we call back to that style. Okay. That's, that makes a lot of sense then why that's the high proof. So I'll allow you to plead the fifth if you want to, but if you had to pick a favorite out of the Whiskey Rose series, what's your personal favorite? Yeah, people ask me that question all the time, so I always have to kind of land on one. Um, <laughs> if I have to pick a favorite, I think I drink the 1910 more often than anything, but it really does depend on like my mood and the weather and who I'm with and, and what I've had that day. Um, mm -hmm. I always say this series is so great because one whiskey drinker can find something to love about all four, or you could find four different whiskey drinkers that each gravitate to one, you know, for different reasons. So it is kind of like a, a Goldilocks uh, type of portfolio. Yeah, that's really well put. Yeah, that they all have something a little bit different going on. So um, you can kind of reach for a different one if you're in a different mood or something like that. Um, now I do I do have a lot of listeners who ask me about rare bottles, allocated bottles, um, you know, all of the above. Um, and I think they would be upset with me if I didn't ask about the scoop on we'll start with birthday bourbon. Okay. Because it's it's a fun name, it's a catchy name, it's a catchy looking bottle. Um and, and what the scoop is on the birthday bourbon, um, why it's so popular, obviously the name, uh and and, and your thoughts on it as a bourbon, as as the flavor of it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's quite funny because birthday bourbon was born out of a time when people were not very interested in bourbon. Um, those who've kind of gotten into the industry have probably heard about like the 70s, 80s, 90s. We saw this huge decline in bourbon consumerism, um, large rise in clear spirits, just not a lot of people gravitating towards the, the aged um, whiskey, uh, American style whiskey category. And so Brown Foreman, 
you know, Old Forester really declined along with the rest of the industry. And it's a it's a beloved brand at Brown Foreman because it was our founding brand. And so a lot of folks at the company really advocated for revitalizing it. And Chris Morris, our, our master distiller, um, came up with this idea. They were looking at a lot of inspirations from other spirits that were kind of being uh, consumed. And wine has always been pretty popular category and had some some good stamina just for generations. And um Chris found that vintage dating was a really good way to get people engaged in a wine brand. And there are no real vintage dated bourbons out on the market. And so the idea behind birthday bourbon was to do something um, vintage dated. So a single day's production of barrels that have aged in our warehouses up into a, a higher age range than we typically put out on the market. So um, usually you'll find birthday bourbon at like the 10, 11, 12 year mark. Um, but all those barrels were produced on the same single day, 10, 11, 12 years prior. And so oh, okay. it gives you this really interesting like case study or snapshot of our production and our maturation. And it also gives you variety coming out every year. So like the Whiskey Row series or the 100 Proof you have next to you, like those are all about consistency. We want people mm -hmm. to know exactly what they're getting when they open them. Things like the birthday bourbon are meant to be a little bit different every year because we want people to be interested in how that flavor develops differently, depending on where it's out in the warehouse or how the seasons were over that decade. Um, and we also proof it a little bit differently every year solely based on where the flavor presents best. So we'll taste it at a range of proofs and kind of land on where we think it shines. And that also gets into kind of the craft of proofing. Um, I know a lot of people are really into cast strength these days, which is a great thing. I think it's a cool subset of the category, but um, I do mm -hmm. think a lot of people forget that like deriving proof is part of the whiskey maker's craft. And so that's something we get in birthday bourbon as well. And it really was, uh, we put it out as a special offering in the early 2000s. I don't think that the brand ever uh, expected it to be quite the cultural phenomenon that it's become. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think um, when you're really aiming for that marketing in a, in a low time, if it works then, then when bourbon booms, it's like, of course, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work tenfold. And I yeah. imagine you take part in helping pick that out every year. And, and how are those tastings? I mean, is it a little bit more exciting since it's like the the big release that you guys are working on yeah it's pretty cool so i actually um i started last november so I, I just hit my one year mark with the brand and um we release it every year in september september 2nd which is which is george garvin brown's birthday a lot of people love the name don't know it's because we release it on our founder's birthday every year <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and so we go into producing next year's like basically as last year's is coming out. So the one that oh. just released in 2023 was already kind of uh, most of the way down the pipeline by the time I kind of got my feet wet. So next year's will be the first one I had like fully involvement as part of the team. Um, so I'm really excited. I mean, this year's was delicious and I've had a really fun time tasting people on it. Um, lots of oak influence, which is like right up my alley, but I am particularly excited about next year's because um, sitting down and getting to pick the proof and talk about the tasting notes, it was it was a pretty cool thing, especially because people do, they get so excited about it. And so it's a, it's a big part of the brand we get to talk about. Wow. So that, I mean, this isn't like two or three tastings, tasting meetings or whatever, what have you, where it's like, oh, it needs to come out here soon. Let's, let's sit down and do a tasting of it. They're, they're working on that immediately in order to prepare for it and make sure that they're getting the right uh, profile, I guess, or the right presentation. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and in whiskey, you always have to do things pretty far in advance because you've got to get 
um, your label approved by the TTB and you got to make sure that you're on the bottling schedule and things like that. So um, it's been an interesting stepping into this role for the last year. Um, It's been a a year long learning curve because it does take things kind of so long to move through that pipeline. Um, And that's the nature of, of matured spirits. Yeah, definitely. I mean, right away, you've got to wait 11 or 12 years to, <laughs> to even be able to bottle it. So it's a it's a slow industry in, that's moving very quickly in a weird way. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking of things moving quickly, new things coming out, new exciting things. Uh, just today, as I was preparing for this interview and I'm scrolling, I see that there's this new uh, 150 decanter coming out. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, today was a splash. It was it was a fun one. Um, and again, this is another project that predated me that I just got really kind of lucky to hop on the tail end of. So uh, we've been around for 153 years now. Our 150th um, plan started going into the works long before that because the company knew this huge milestone was coming up. And so uh, Chris Morris, um, Macaulay Adams, who is a Brown family member who works uh, at the company, um, was working on this project at the time, did just gorgeous work on the decanter. They started like dipping their toes in this concept, I think around like 2008. Um, They set six barrels aside uh, that were going to be particularly for the 150th anniversary. They wanted them to age for 150 months. And so that's 12 and a half years. So quite a bit in advance to kind of plan for that. Um, And then they designed this decanter kind of inspired by another first in Old Forester's history, which is we were the first brand to ever produce decorative decanters. And that started in the early 50s and ran through the 1960s. Um, You see a lot of other brands putting out more of those ceramic style decanters in like the 70s, 80s. Again, as people fell out of interest with bourbon, they were trying to kind of engage them back in. Um, Ours Mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s were just a a stylistic choice. They wanted to offer people um, a bottle that they could gift for the holidays that could be reused as a a beautiful piece of decoration in their homes. Uh, And they're all very sleek glass, mid-century modern, um, mostly designed by a guy named Raymond Lowy, who's really famous industrial designer. Um, And so for the 150th, they wanted to kind of call back to that style of this really kind of sexy glass decanter that is like such a big part of our history and design one that has modern relevance. And then 2020 came along and the 150th anniversary is like totally squashed by obviously everything going on in 2020. And so Brown family members were all gifted the decanter with the the 12 and a half year old liquid in it. Um, But we sat on 150 bottles because we wanted to make the release a bit more ceremonious than what was going on during 2020. And so we kind of finally got ready this year and um, just this morning put out a link online for folks to purchase that 150th decanter. It'll come in a special wooden box that's been handcrafted from wood that was reclaimed from the 2015 Whiskey Row fire. I told you lots of fires in our history. Um, (laughs) And and folks will be picking it up at an event at the distillery on December 5th, where we are going to be like roaring 20s themed. We're doing a special tour path around the distillery where we're going to have little stops to talk to Brown family members do a little tasting, have some good food. And so um, all kind of tied up in in the price tag of this is is that juice, the bottle, the box, the experience, just to really make this as special as we wanted it to be in 2020. Wow. Now, did you have the chance to try it? And what are your thoughts on on the liquid in the bottle? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, we couldn't put it to market without me trying it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, so I got to sip a little bit back at Derby um, because Derby is also a very ceremonious time for us. Uh, that was my first time trying it and it blew me away. And then we had some press out all week, kind of uh, building a relationship, getting them engaged with the brand and did a little tasting last night. Um, and it really is, we put out, you know, birthday bourbon at 12 years. We have some president's choice as well that comes out at that age, but there's something really special about this super small batch of barrels. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously you're going to get a lot of the wood qualities. To me, it has the perfect kind of like cigar cured tobacco uh, kind of overtone to it, which is one of my absolute favorite notes in whiskey. And it pairs really well with that kind of sticky banana bread pudding that we tend to get from Old Forester's classic yeast profile. Um, mm. And so it's it's desserty, but it's earthy. It has that tobacco note. It has a lot of those barrel tannins on the back end. It's at a hundred proof, so it's really sippable, but it definitely brings the spice even at that hundred proof. Um, I think it's phenomenal. So I'm excited for everybody that got their hands on one. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I'm just realizing with the numbers, it might be because they gave so many out to the to the Brown uh, family members. It's just 150 bottles that went up for sale with six barrels. Were they picking specific ratios out of these barrels when they designed it? So it's just like this much out of barrel one, this much out of barrel two, and then they, or was it the six barrels became blended together and then they had given some away to the Brown family members? Yeah, the six barrels got blended together. Um, and I think their aim was to get about 500 bottles out of it um, okay. and you got to think yield at 12 and a half years with evaporation yeah. and then we have a little bit of extra loss to angel share in our warehouses because we do something called heat cycling which kind of utilizes mm. the full calendar year and puts a little bit more heat and humidity in our warehouses in the winter time um, so we tend to get okay. even lower yield up at that 12 year mark so um, the Brown family is also quite large. Uh, it's one thing you have to understand. <laughs> um, That's what I was wondering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So all the family members got one. Um, and then, you know, key people at the company. The, one of the things that's beautiful about Brown Foreman is because it's a, such a great company to work for. And I know I'm paid to say that, but it, it truly <laughs> is. Um, is there are people who've been working at that company for like 30, 40 years. And so there are people who've really had a huge impact on this 150th tenure. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of that stuff uh, was handed out in 2020 to kind of all the key players and then 150 held back. Okay. That makes sense. That's what I was wondering if it was like the size of the family or, or what the story was. Oh, there. they're a big family. Yeah. I mean, six generations and we're talking, you know, we have like probably two to three who all kind of work in and out of the company at the moment. Um, so yeah, quite wow. a few went out. Yeah. That's that's pretty awesome, though, to still have folks from the family within the company. I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, I am curious, and I just thought of this, um, but 1915, mixing the 1910 and the 1920, given that you are a master taster, have you tried this, and what are your thoughts on it? I have tried it, admittedly, like way later than anybody thought. Like I had someone at a tasting be like, what's your preferred ratio for 1915? And I was like, <laughs> I should probably sit down and and try it first. Um, <laughs> and I think it's great. You know, anytime that you have people engaging enough with your brand that first of all, they're purchasing two bottles, which we're not mad about. Um, and, <laughs> and playing around with the flavor enough to kind of find their own version of it is a, is an awesome thing. The one kind of exception I'll say to that is we have had some issues with people kind of making fake labels and kind of counterfeiting it as a product on the market. And I always just tell people that's not cool. You know, that's the kind of thing that's going to mm -hmm. like 
cause us to have to pivot around something. And we really do try to be a brand that leans into what consumers are excited about and like makes things available. But um, that's the kind of thing that just kind of like keeps us on our heels a little bit sometimes. Uh, but barring that kind of behavior, I think it's so cool that people are into it. A lot of people I talk to, they just go 50-50. Other people have their own preferred kind of ratios. I don't know that I have one that I can say I've perfected, but I do really see why that cult following, what it was born out of. Because like I said, that 1910 has such sweet confectionery flavors, as does the 1920, but bringing that proof point into play, uh, it, it makes for a great little micro blend. So I think if people are going to be doing that at home, sounds fun. Yeah, I haven't personally tried it. I, I had 1910, I had 1920. I need to mix them and see what happens. But I just, when I heard about that, I, I had the same reaction. I thought that's a really interesting thing that people were so interested in the two that they blend them and they came up with this this idea. So I'll have to try that out and, and see how those flavors uh, intermix. I yeah, guess. give it a shot. Let us know what you're preferred. <laughs> Well, and some people do, uh, you know, like a little more, a little less, and then they'll call it like a 1913 or like a 1917. <laughs> right. I'm like, wow, you guys, <laughs> the creativity out there. <laughs> it is rather creative. I mean, you could almost do a tasting of a bunch of combinations. And, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, I could see that being a fun blind tasting, putting a, putting together a few of them and seeing what ratio is, is the best, I guess. Totally. Yeah, that's a, that's a fun little, I guess thing that just kind of came out of nowhere came out of the online community i suppose yeah uh, <laughs> so i guess in order to uh in order to kind of round things out i appreciate you once again taking the time to break down all this i know i ask a lot of nerd questions i, I love being able to get the background on all these things um but we're seeing these exciting releases obviously the birthday bourbon every year the new um decanter that came out this year which i suppose by the time people listen to this they're not going to be able to get it but at least now you know the story behind it um what other like what other things, especially being that you're newer to being at Old Forester, what other things about the company are really exciting you right now? And for those listening who want to know more about Old Forester or they want to hear the exciting things about it, um, as you've gotten into this job, what about it has been really enticing or surprised you about it? That that's a great question. Um, and I was a big, admittedly, a big Old Forester fan before I got into the role. Um, I'm from Louisville and kind of came up here and it's always been a huge hometown hero brand for us because it was founded here in 1870 and has existed here ever since. Um, one of the things that really excites me is just how much love there is for the brand across the country right now. And we're still like a, a relatively small brand kind of comparatively uh, to some other big bourbon brands out on the market. Um, but our recognition and like the enthusiasm behind what we're doing as a brand, I think is really authentic, which we always stand on a lot of authenticity um, as a historic brand ourselves. But to see us be able to bring so much modern relevance to a, a bourbon brand that's been around since 1870 um, is just, I think, a very cool thing. And it excites me about working on the brand because it makes it really easy to engage with people. And I'm always just like really overwhelmed by how many people that I meet out across the country, like have been following us for a long time and really do feel passionately about being fans of Old Forester. So that is a very cool thing to see. And I think that it's because we have a portfolio like I said, that just kind of meets everybody where they're at. We've got our core expressions that are 
really widely available, great value. You can find them behind your bar, backed by your favorite bartender. And then we've got the Whiskey Row series, which leans a little bit more into those kind of whiskey nerds, a little bit more of the craft style, but still available on shelf at value. And then we've got our premium stuff that people can kind of chase and follow, which, you know, we'd love to put in the hands of every single Old Forester consumer if we could produce enough of it and it didn't take 12 years to age. <laughs> right. And so that kind of depth in a portfolio, I think just is a great way for people to find at least something they can latch on to and then engage a little bit more with what the brand is doing. And I think our storytelling aligns with that too. The fact that people who do feel connected to the product can also have these stories that they've heard and they can tell to their friends. And so I just think everything about the brand is really relaxed and really comfortable and really authentic and tries not to come off as like overly pretentious. And um, that is the type of whiskey space I like to play in. And so I love to see how much other people really feel connected to that. So that's kind of my overall like take on the, on the ethos of old Forrester and why I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I hadn't put it to words until you just said about how people can find what they like with old Forrester, but it, it, makes me realize it's kind of like a glass shattering moment in my head um, that I, one of the reasons I reached out for this interview, I, I get so many old Forrester recommendations in my comments and it's always different bottles. It's always, Oh, you have to have the 1910. Oh, you have to have the prohibition. Oh. And, and so I'm always just like, well, everybody loves old Forrester. Obviously I, I've enjoyed multiple different bottles of old Forrester, but I thought, well, clearly my audience likes the, the sp- the spread of different, the portfolio of whiskeys, uh, which is why I wanted to, to break down a few of those different bottles, but you're totally right. I mean, I never, I never put that to words that it's everybody can find something different with the different bottles because they don't all just taste like different variations of the same thing or different quality levels of the same thing. Yeah. Which is crazy because all of it starts as the same distillate. So we have one mash bill, one yeast strain, So the fact that we have kind of so many differentiation points and levers we pull that does create this kind of, um, like I said, deep portfolio of, of offerings is, is pretty cool. And I think speaks to the fact that we've been around for so long and have had that time tested ability to perfect our flavor and how we leverage it is, I think, a really special part of the brand, like from a geeky perspective, not just the storytelling aspect, but like our juice is legitimately like evidence based when it comes to production yeah. practices. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now that, that makes me have to ask another question. Cause that's an excellent point. Um, we talked about some of the levers you guys are pulling to change those flavor profiles. So you've got, you know, maybe double barreling, you've got your proof point. Um, are what, what other major factors are you guys toying with in order to have such a spread of different flavors with the same distillate. I hadn't even considered that until you just said that. Yeah, a lot of it is um, like maturation practices. So like the microclimates in the warehouse are going to do a lot for like variation on flavor. And so Mm -hmm. our batching practices really have a lot to do with all those other kind of levers that we pull. Um, The proof, the age, where it comes from in the warehouse, how it's been finished. Filtration, although most of our stuff is pretty minimally filtered, but yeah, all of that on the maturation and finished good side is is what we do to make it different. That really is a good example for those listening who who haven't quite experienced the difference that even just location in the warehouse can have on a flavor profile. Um, 
I know a lot of people tend to think if it's the same distillate, it's going to be the same whiskey. I'll have people recommend to me, you know, don't drink this, drink this. It's the same distillate. And uh, I think that's a really good testament to the different levers that can be pulled other than distillate, yeast, strand, those sorts of things. Um, that's that's a good note to end on. I'm glad you mentioned that because I hadn't <laughs> even thought of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad totally. you mentioned that. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to, to talk with me about this um, because I, I had so many questions. I, I could keep you all night long, I'm sure, with the different questions I could ask, but you've been a wealth of knowledge on it, and I really appreciate that. Um, so thank you for taking the time to sit down with me, and please enjoy the rest of your night. Yeah, well, thank you. It's always fun to brag about Old Forester and, and get into the <laughs> nitty gritty of it. So um, happy to hear that your folks are dropping recommendations for us in, in the comments section. Hope that keeps up. Before you go, I do have to shout out three new expert noobs on the Patreon page. So thank you so much to Samuel Allison, Bob Parker, and Mac for your patronage. If you're interested in joining that Patreon page, make sure you go check it out in the show notes below. Thank you so much to all the patrons, and thank you to all you guys listening to this right now for your awesome support. I will leave you with learn to drink, drink to learn. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Whiskey Noobs. If you need more Whiskey Noobs content in your life, make sure you check out our Patreon page in the show notes. And if you like the show, please make sure to leave a five-star rating or review. It only takes a couple of minutes, and they're way more helpful than people realize. If you want to do tastings alongside the show, make sure you join the email list by sending an email to whiskeynoobspodcast at gmail.com with a subject line that says email list. You'll receive monthly emails with a list of the whiskeys that will be featured throughout the month so that you can buy them ahead of time. You can also find more Whiskey Noobs content on Instagram at Whiskey underscore Noobs and on TikTok at Whiskey Noobs Podcast. Once again, thank you guys for listening. The Whiskey Noobs Podcast does not support underage or otherwise irresponsible consumption of alcohol.